0: You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, starting verse 13 this morning. Uh, Today is our last Sunday. In our series, Just Like Jesus, we've been looking uh, the last, I think about seven or eight weeks, uh, at character, emotion, uh, actions of Jesus. And if we as Christians are called to be, grow every day, to be just like Jesus, growing and maturing uh, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we respond to our emotions, uh, and those kind of things, we want to be growing in those things. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at being confident just like Jesus. Uh, how many of you are confident that this coming Tuesday, which is not a national holiday, which I still think is pretty stupid, uh, because I think every time we have a national election, it should be an off holiday that people can go to to go vote if we say that we want people to be able to do that. But how many of you are confident that after this Tuesday, all of our problems will be fixed? <laughs> okay, Martin and I have to have a conversation later. Later. I, have some land I, could sell. I yeah, sell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Apparently, things work differently in Germany. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think all of us are pretty stinking sure that uh, after the elections, you know, midterm elections that will be taking place on Tuesday, uh, that we're probably going to be still pretty much in the same kind of conundrum that we find ourselves in. And yet, it's pretty fascinating to me how confident some people are when it comes to personality, the cult of personality. Whoever their person is, that this is the answer. This is the one that fixes it. Right? There's not a lot of things that we feel like as we go through life that we have a lot of confidence in. right? Uh, and so, but the reality is for a lot of us, and you'll, you'll probably agree with me when I say this, uh, the people that seem to be successful in the life are the people that at least seem confident. Right? They can have absolutely no idea what they're doing, but if they can just seem confident then it seems like they can figure out a way to make it forward, right? Uh, the, the idea of being able to um, uh, have a grasp on the world around us in such a way where it's like, I can handle this, I can take it, even though you don't. There's this funny thing. We have a, a, a large group of younger folks today. Um, I was a lot more confident when I was 18 than I am today. Any other adults would say that you agree with some of the reality of that? like Because you just don't know. It's just like, man, I got this. I can, I can take this bull by the horns. And then all of a sudden you get to like 25, 26, 27, and you start looking at your parents and going like, maybe they weren't as dumb as I thought they were, you know? Uh, There's this sense that the world becomes bigger. Things become more complicated. and, And in a sense, we can lose our sense of confidence. And yet, again, as I already said, we know that people that seem to be successful in life seem to have some level of, I got this. I know how to handle this. When you think of Jesus confidence might not be one of those character traits that just really jumps out at you. Uh, That Him as a leader, those kind of things, we wouldn't just look at Jesus and uh, blatantly say, you know, we talk about Jesus in terms of love or His boldness or those kind of things. But confidence may not necessarily be something that we're uh, familiar with with Jesus. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that you, you might be familiar with in Matthew chapter 16. It's, uh, it gets quoted a number of times uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, and I want us to look specifically at how do we land at the confidence of Jesus. And this is confidence in all Things. So this is not just casual confidence. This is confidence over everything. Take a look with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 begins with this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others. Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Of course this is a familiar passage of scripture in a number of different ways. This is that gets quoted a lot of times when bad things happen and we say, you know, like lines like the uh, uh, you know, the kingdom of God's coming and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? Um Or this key question of, who do you say that I am? Jesus expresses a level of confidence that is in this that is pretty hard um, to overstate. Jesus says in the midst of this, I will build my church. And hell itself isn't going to win against me. Uh, And the reality of the confidence of Jesus in the midst of a crazy world is something that we can rest in. But if we're honest, it sometimes feels like uh, we don't know if that's going to be able to happen. I think it's one of the reasons why there is so much political turmoil within the Western uh, Christian world over this sense of like, we need to accomplish the kingdom of God and so we have to use power to be able to accomplish it. And when Jesus taught on this reality of His confidence that regardless of what man does, if hell itself musters all of its forces to come against the, the, the kingdom of God and the church of Christ, it would not win. That's a pretty heavy level of confidence. But all confidence begins with a level of conjecture level of conjecture. We see this at the first thing that he says. When he says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a conjecture question. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? At this time, Caesarea Philippi is in northern Israel. This is part of the the walkabout that Jesus did with His disciples that went the furthest north into uh, Tyre and Sidon and into Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi of Jesus' ministry was the most pagan place that Jesus went in His entire ministry. Uh, the, The names for it, Caesarea Philippi, Uh, It comes from uh, Herod Philip... Uh, who was one of, the, one of the Herods, he established this place. He gave it a name as a place of worship for Caesar, so thus to distinguish it from other places of Philippi, like where we get the, the uh, letter to the church in uh, the Philippians. This is not that place. Uh, and so he names it Caesarea Philippi, which is a renaming of what it was before that. It was called Panea. Uh, when the Greeks were in charge of this area and its significance as a place was, it was the place of the cult of Pan. Any of you guys remember your Greek mythology? Anybody remembering that? Who was Pan? Kara? Was a huh? He was. A he was a satyr. He lived. He was uh, one of the gods that was raised by the satyrs. Does anybody know what Pan was the god of? He was the god of the world is what he was known as. Uh, and in some Greek uh, ideas, when you say something like a, uh, we use the word panoramic view, what are we what are we describing? The all Right, that's what to pan to pan out is to get a bigger picture, and there were some within the Greek world that believed that Pan was the god of all the gods. He was over all of the things, even uh, aside from Jupiter or Zeus or any of the other kind of ideology. And the cult of Pan existed as its hub in the place of Caesarea Philippi. It's a pretty striking place if you look it up on a map uh, as it was. It sat, the city of Caesarea Philippi, sat at the base of a sheer rock mountain, snow-covered on, that uh, was snow-covered year-round, and then there was this sheer cliff that came down, and Caesarea Philippi existed at the base of it. And the reason it existed at the base of it was there was a a cave system that was there that had natural water springs that would come out. And the people that came there to worship at, these, at the cult of Pan, the temples that were there, they believed that that cave system was a direct way to the underworld. It was the opening to Hades. And they believed that Pan would come in and out of that place every year, bringing new life and fertility. And so all kinds of, um, all kinds of pagan practices of sacrifice uh, and um, everything related to uh, fertility worship and everything would happen in that place. Uh, it was, in Jesus' day, would have been considered like the Red District the most pagan place within the context of there. And so the disciples had to have been pretty shocked when Jesus said, we're going to pass through the area of Caesarea Philippi. And let alone that, while we're there, we're going to... I'm going to ask you some particular questions. And this is a turning point uh, in the story of Matthew um, that leads us all the way to the cross from this point. Something dramatic happens. And Jesus asks them a question of conjecture. He says as they're standing in the, the shadow of this pagan place, He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, they begin to relate probably what they had heard other people conjecturing about Jesus. You know, who is this guy? What is he like? The first example that he says is, some say John the Baptist. And that was significant because in the timeline of this, John is dead. John was beheaded by Herod uh, because uh, John said, you can't live in sexual immorality and be God's king. And they didn't want anything to do with that. You know the whole story of that. And John, as, as the last Old Testament prophet, was beheaded. And then... Because in the ancient world, there's no Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. People begin to hear, you know, knew of this crazy guy out preaching in the wilderness. And they heard that guy died, but then all of a sudden there's a crazy guy out in the wilderness. And he's preaching. And he's preaching the kingdom of God is coming. And the same thing that John the Baptist. And so you can pretty easily see people are like, did he come back? Is this John the Baptist again? Right, that would be a pretty big deal. So there was an element of that that was superstitious. People were looking at Jesus from a superstitious kind of a perspective. Others, it says, uh, and others claim you are Elijah. Does anybody know within Jewish culture what's significant about Elijah? It has to do with Passover. Anybody know? When you set up your Passover meal, you always set a, a spare table seat. For Elijah to come. Because Elijah would be the precursor of the Messiah. Elijah would be the one that does come and makes ready the way of the coming Messiah. And so, there were some people that were looking at Jesus and they were saying, maybe He's Elijah. Maybe He's the one that makes the way for the Messiah to be able to come. And so these were, uh, they weren't being superstitious. They were trying to be theological. They were trying to be spiritual in the way that they were approaching this. And then he says, still others claimed Jeremiah. It's kind of an obscure minor prophet of the Old Testament And this probably is a conjecture around the nature of their going, maybe this is Jeremiah come back, because Jeremiah was kind of the downer prophet. Jeremiah was the one that wrote lamentations, lament. It was not positive. And Jesus very often when He spoke of the nation of Israel, it was not in great terms. It was not in terms that made everybody like, this guy thinks we are awesome, amazing. He would weep over them. And say, "Oh, that you would repent and come back and God cries over you, and there's this sense of that. Maybe it's one of those." And people were speculating about who this Jesus was. The reaction sometimes is super is uh, superstitious. Sometimes the reaction is theological, and sometimes it's emotional, but at that point in time it was all conjecture. When it comes to Jesus, All of us begin at a place of conjecture. If you grew up in a Christian family, your conjecture might be something like, well, I guess Jesus is important because mom and dad think He's important. Or if grandma thinks He's important. Or the, the, this teach, Christian teacher thinks he's important. So maybe bees you know, kind of important. And then as you grow, you may be wrestling with those things. And like, well, but it's so old and that we're so new and we know stuff now that we didn't know back then. And it's all this conjecture about who the person and work of Jesus is. And it stays out here. And this is what Jesus begins with this in the sense of confidence as He says, listen, I know there's a lot of people that are holding the idea of who I am out here loosely. But he goes from conjecture to confrontation. He doesn't leave it out there just like, huh, okay, that's interesting, let's keep walking. He says, but who do you say that I am? Tozer, uh, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, wrote this. Um, he said, the most important thing we think or about us the most important thing about us is what we think about who God is the most important thing about us is what we think about who God is Jesus didn't leave it out in the speculation side he confronted the disciples now these are the people that have been walking with him for up to this point years now They've seen Him do miracles. They've heard Him teach. They've done all of these kind of things. And so they've also heard the same speculation that everybody else has had. And up until this point, there has been no revelation of Jesus to them saying, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Uh, I'm the seed of... Eve that will crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 4. All of that lineage, I'm He. None of that has been expressly said. And so Jesus confronts them and says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, the spokesman of the disciples steps up and he has what has been known as the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is no mistaking expressly what Peter is saying. And he's making huge theological statements that have uh, really not a whole lot of theological precedent within the main belief system of the Jewish people. They knew a Messiah was coming. They thought that Messiah was going to be coming in power... In, power in such a way as to overthrow Romans and, and break off, to bring justice to the, the world, all of those kind of things. And the idea that that was actually going to be the Son of God, and that there would be this divine link between that just wasn't there. And yet, He knows that, and He says that, and He says it with great force, with great gusto, with a sense of great confidence. And what I find so fascinating about that is if, if Peter died right then, like he made that statement and died, we'd all think like, man, he got it. He was so confident in it. But Peter doesn't die right after this, right? There's a lot of other things that happen in Peter's life after this, right? Like the whole night of the crucifixion when some little teenage girl is sitting over by the fire and she says, hey, weren't you with that Jesus guy And Peter's response is, do you mean the Christ, the Son of the living God? No, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Three different times. And the last time, his inner sailor comes out and he curses at her. And he says, what are you talking about? I don't know this guy. Or what about later on when Paul had to rebuke him Because he was more concerned about what other Jewish people thought of him than other Christians thought of him. See the level of confidence that we read into into Peter's statement didn't necessarily translate out into everyday life for Peter. Do you ever feel like you know you wake up in the morning and you're like, all right, I'm a Christian, I'm gonna follow Jesus, and then the day happens. And it's like, man, alive, this is kinda hard. It's kinda hard to to do the things that God is asking me to do. It's it's kinda hard to uh, to say the kind of things that God wants me to say. It's kind of hard for me to not do the things that my flesh really wants to do that I'm feeling pressure to do. It's kinda hard for me not to walk in this pattern of life that if the world were looking at me, they wouldn't see no Jesus in. We're in good company with that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what has been known as the Great Confession. It is succinct, it is real, it is hopeful, and it is true. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the long-expected Savior of the world. And He is the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to His confession was one of great congratulations. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Every time when you read the word blessed in the, in the New Testament, the Greek word that's used there describes a sense of somebody who ought to be congratulated. You know, when we talk about the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemaker, you can translate it happy. Happy is the peacemaker. Happy is that. But it's it's somebody that something has happened in their life that if people heard about it, they'd come up and pat them on the shoulder and say, congratulations, this is so incredible. I'm so happy for you. I'm so great that this happened. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal it. nobody told you this but God revealed it to you see the kind of confidence that we have that is marked by Jesus is not a kind of confidence that we muster of our own strength it's not that we have confidence because we are now educated enough we're now, uh, you know, we have an intellectual quotient, an IQ that's now high enough to be able to grasp these concepts. Or that we have an EQ, an emotional quotient that is able to wrap itself around and understand these kind of principles. See, there's nobody that gets into heaven and gets to boast in the fact that I figured it out, I understood this. I I was at the right place at the right time, I dug in, I figured this out. Go me. He says, No, no, no. The reason that we can be blessed and the reason that we can have confidence is not because flesh and blood reveals the truth of God to us, but because God Himself reveals it to us. It is the sense of knowing that is supernatural. To become a Christian is not by proxy. And it's not by the will of man. It's not by the skill of a preacher or anybody else. It is that God does something to open their eyes. All of us have known people that we've we've seen them wrestling with something and we come to them and we tell them truth. And we get really frustrated because it's very obvious they can't say see it Am I the only person that's ever had that kind of conversation with somebody they're just they're just they don't they're, it's literally like there's they're spiritual scales over their eyes and they just can't see hope they can't see truth they can't see a way forward they're just like this is what is and this is all it is and we plead and we try and we, we try to articulate differently to open the truth of this uh, goodness of God and his plan and it's simply not there. This is why Jesus says to Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father did who's in heaven. And then He has a play on words. And this play on words has caused a lot of trouble in Christianity over the last 2,000 years. He says, and I say to you, you are... Peter. Remember he he called him you are Simon son of Jonah or Simon Simon Bar-Jonah it's just a transliteration of the son of Jonah uh, as that Uh, and I say to you you are Peter, this is his nickname and on this rock I will build my church. And the reason that this has caused so much trouble and it's like what in the world is that? it doesn't make sense as we're even reading this in English so Jesus looks at Peter and he takes his nickname, Peter which is uh, Petros? You can hear the P- Peter Petros into that, and it means rock. That's what the word means. Now, whether or not Peter got this nickname because he was hard-headed or stubborn, uh, or you know something like that, I mean, we think of uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, and the nickname that they got probably because they were guys that got into tussles and things like that. How did uh, did Peter become the rock in the midst of that? But this is a play on words that he says. He says, I also say to you that you are Petros, and upon this Petros, this rock, I will build my church. And the reason this has had a lot of confusion over uh, the last 2,000 years is because uh, the wording that is used here describes Jesus talking directly to Peter... And he says that this rock, Peter, and this rock that I will certainly build my church on is the means by which... Uh, things like the the papacy, the pope, and the secession of apostolic uh, secession from one pope to the next of being those that God has built his church upon has caused such confusion. If it had not been for the Protestant Reformation that had such a reaction against uh, Catholic teaching on that, I don't think any Bible reader or scholar would have actually bucked against the fact that Jesus was actually looking at Peter and saying, you're right, and On this rock, I will build my church. Some people have argued that it was not Peter that he was talking about, that it was the confession of Peter that he was talking about. But the reality of it is, as Jesus is describing it, he's putting it on Peter. And it's a profound thing that he's saying, this belief that you have that was not of yourself, you don't get to claim any attaboy from myself on that because God gave it to you. And the fact that you've believed this, it's this kind of reality that I will build my church upon. And the word play there, it is distinct. Petros uh, is the, the word that describes a rock. Petros is the word that describes a foundational rock, a bedrock, a solid one. And Jesus says, I will build my church upon this. Now, it is helpful for us to actually... This is why I began with the geography of this. When Jesus is asking this question, He is standing in sight of a gigantic rock mountain that comes in a sheer cliff and comes out in established bedrock way out into into the land where all of these temples were built on. Everything that you could see was built on bedrock. And as Jesus is describing this, and He says, you are Peter, a rock. And on the bedrock of the reality of everything that you've just said, and you yourself, I will certainly build My church. Absolute confidence. And then He says this, and this is, I think, to be an interesting point. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And again for us, we, we feel like that's metaphorical and everything else. And Jesus is literally staring at the gates of hell. Because that's what the cave was called for the cult of the, of the uh, worship of Pan. All of the idolatry, all of the immorality, all of the hatred, all of the sacrifice, all of the sacrilege, everything that warred against the reality of who God was, was within eyesight. And Jesus said, everything that's evil, it doesn't stand a chance. The certainty of what I will do is certain. I will... Build my church. Future perfect as he describes it there. And the gates of hell, they won't prevail against it. Uh, we were at a conference here not too long ago uh, and the speaker at the conference uh, made a, an interesting point. He said, we, we, we talk about the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, and it seems like we're at war, right? And the enemy's coming against us. And we're on the defensive all the time. That's what, if you listen to the rhetoric of how uh, uh, the, the conversation of worldliness versus Christianity, sounds like we're on the defensive and they're on the offensive. And we, we just got to defend truth and we got to protect. And all those, those are all defensive terms, right? And Jesus uses this, this wordplay in a way that's pretty interesting. I don't know, do you guys like war movies? You ever seen anybody... Uh, on the attack, on the offensive, running at you with a gate, anybody ever seen that? Like Russia is not invading Ukraine with gates. Gates are not offensive weapons they 're what? Defense. You put up gates to keep people out. you don 't want people in if you put up a gate. And yet, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail, which is an offensive term, against us. They won't win. Jesus is describing a reality for His disciples. He says, listen, you're not on the defensive. As a Christian, you live on the offensive. We live as kingdom members of the gospel, or the kingdom of light, of the living God, the true God, the real God. And the gate that holds all the darkness in, the gate that holds all death in, the gate that holds all of us in, it's not going to win. The gates of hell. They don't stand a chance against this hope of the gospel. This confession that He is the Messiah. The one that we can build our lives in, root our lives into. And this confidence that Jesus has of saying, I will build my church. It's one of those things that is incredibly encouraging for me as a pastor that makes church my vocation. It's the thing I think about all the time. It's the thing I work towards and network around and those kind of things. And there's definitely times when it feels discouraging. When you talk with people who are believers, the only believer in their family, and nobody else is listening, and they're are we, are we making any headway? And you talk to missionaries that are in other places in the world, and it, it just seems dark and hopeless painful they don't feel like they're making any traction in the midst of all of it and yet the promise of Jesus is I will build my church and all evil can't stand it they can't stop it they can't hold it back And Jesus' confidence doesn't just stop with himself because he's just Jesus saying, I'll build my church. But his confidence is shared to us. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something that seems really odd to us. This is not the way that we normally talk. He says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom, when Jesus came preaching the gospel, He came preaching a gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, His rule and reign into this world. It's one of the most encouraging things for us that as we read Scripture, God didn't, tell, or God didn't leave us without knowing what the end looks like. The end looks like a new heaven, a new earth, and God restoring all things, the former things forgotten, every tear dried up from our eye, and all evil vanquished forever. That's an incredible picture of hope, of His kingdom ruling and reigning. We now live on this side of it where we still see evil. We still experience grief. We still uh, see the effects of sin upon this world. And Jesus says to us, in the midst of that, again remember, the shadow of the cross is still before Him on this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom the authority to open and close, if you will. And what is it that we, who are built into this church, have the ability to open and close? People have tried to interpret this a lot of different ways, but I think it's actually in the way that the verbiage works that gives us a clarity of it. He says, you're going to do some things. You will bind things on earth. You'll say, this is mine with the key to the kingdom. This is a part of us and you're going to lock it in. And He also is going to say, you're also going to unlock here on earth. You're going to do some things as a follower of Me. And what that's going to translate into is, does anybody see how weird of a way it says this? It says, shall have been. Do you guys use that in a way that you described anything? You know, the the, uh, uh, basketball tournament this past weekend shall have been a good basketball tournament. It's not the way that we talk about it. But the reason it's described as this is that it is a future perfect uh, in the present time way of describing it. In other words, we're going to do things now that reveal in the future that God has accomplished it. As a follower of Jesus, as He's building His kingdom, He's going to have us doing things that when we will see all things, we will see that God accomplished that in us. Here's how this translates out into uh, our... Ability to be able to have confidence. When we pray, we often pray, or not often, we always pray from our heart what we long to see happen. And the reality is, sometimes what happens after we pray isn't what we prayed for. Right? I had the privilege this past week of spending a bunch of time with a guy named Tim Bat. Tim and Haley were in served uh, on a short vision trip back in Galena about 10 years ago, when they were at Moody Aviation, and they were exploring ministry and that kind of thing. And Haley is a is a pilot, Tim is a is a mechanic, uh, and they. Uh, about five years ago felt God leading them to move to McGrath and serve there. So they do youth ministry and run a, a Bible camp in the summer. And they, uh, Tim's an elder at the church. And Haley flies all the mission stuff that's there. And so the gatherings that we've had, Haley's done the flying for that. Uh, and about this time last year, Tim started to notice weakness in his left side. He started realizing that he just got a limp that was going on and that limp very very rapidly deteriorated to where there was just no muscle strength at all in his in his left side and it began to radiate down into his arm and a, a rapid battery of tests revealed a very aggressive form of ALS which had taken his mom and taken his grandparents he has a genetic form of it it's very rapid onset Uh, when I last saw him was in um, end of February last year and he was walking with a cane. Not very long after that he was relegated to a a wheelchair. And by the grace of God and the advancement of uh, medicine they found a a medicine that he was allowed to be on trial of, to be uh, experimental on and it seems to have very greatly reduced the deterioration of his nervous system, allowing him to not get worse. He's not going to get better, but he's not, at the present moment, deteriorating as rapidly. And so as we helped him there, uh, as we were at that prayer meeting, we ended up staying at a bed and breakfast that all of the bedrooms were upstairs. And so I got to put Tim on my back and carry him up and down the stairs to be able to do those kind of things. And we gathered around Him and we prayed. And we prayed as all of us would in the reality of this. God, You are the great physician. You can heal. And we pray with hope. And we pray with fervor. And we can even look at this and say, God, I'm praying that You would loose this upon Him. That he would be freed of it. All the while knowing the reality that Tim's gonna see the Lord Jesus much sooner than we want him to see him. You see, Chris, that doesn't sound like a lot of faith. What do you how does, how does this create confidence in that? Because here's the reality of this. If we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then every prayer that we pray will be answered by God exactly as we would have prayed them had we known all that God knows. Every prayer that we pray would be answered exactly the way that we would have prayed it had we known... What will be loosed in heaven? God's sovereignty over us mingles with our obedience to walk doing the things that God has us to do. And the reality of this for us is that this coming week when uh, if you're you know, over the age of 18 and you go to the voting booth and you cast your vote with a hope that maybe this might change something. The reality of it is God's sovereign over all of the idiots. Which is great news. Because I'm in that mix. And so I can know that as I step into conversations with people who, because of how elections have been going, want nothing to do with Jesus. I can step into those under the confidence of who Jesus is and his kingdom and his rule and his reign and his sufficiency, and I can say with confidence, he's still good. You need to know him. And if I can convince you, if I can, if I can show you, if I can encourage you, here he is. He's so, so good. It is because of this confidence that Tim with a smile on his faith, with a smile on his face, can say, "If the Lord gives me another day, it's, it's okay. And if He takes me home, it's okay." The confidence of God, the confidence of Jesus, is not built around circumstances. It's not. It's not built around power. Jesus makes this statement as pagan worship is happening within earshot, and he says, "All of this, all of this, is not going to stand a chance." We've challenged ourselves pretty heavily through this study to look at aspects of Jesus that were contradictory to us. We don't get angry about things like Jesus gets angry about things. We don't get filled with joy the way that Jesus gets filled with joy. We don't experience grief over the same kind of things that Jesus experienced grief over. And we definitely don't have the confidence that Jesus has. Rest easy. Neither did Peter. Neither did John. Neither did James. Neither, Neither did Paul. But all of them just looked to Jesus and said, I trust you. I trust you. And they put one foot spiritually in front of the other and did what God asked them to do. Failing, faltering, making missteps. And God has accomplished everything that He sought to do. As we study history, we do know that people in the name of Jesus have done atrocious things, awful things. We can't deny that as a reality. But one thing else that we cannot deny is that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been building His church. And He's been building it so efficiently that there's going to come a day, the promise of Scripture is that one day we will stand with a company of the church around His throne, and it will be a crowd that is so big, nobody can count it. From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every people, from every corner of the globe. And in their heart language, will declare the same thing. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. If that doesn't give you confidence to be a follower of Jesus, i got nothing else for you. There's no greater hope that we have that He has accomplished everything that He said He would do. And He'll use our meager efforts as we bind and loose on earth to prove God's sovereignty to accomplish all that He intends to do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true and right and real. God, we need confidence. Not confidence in political parties. Not confidence in this church as a as an institution. Not confidence in our identity and our gender and our education and our marital status and our age. Anything else that we could find confidence in. But confidence in you Jesus in your kingdom that you will build your church and your church will last for eternity so God I pray for boldness for us to be able to proclaim this hope of Jesus to a world that desperately this literally dying to hear it and we pray that you would give ears to hear and eyes to see of those that as of this moment can't and won't help us to take up this mantle that what we bind on earth, will be, have been bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And let us rest in the fact that you are our Messiah, our Savior, the one that has given your life to reconcile us to God. And everything that's evil, it doesn't stand a chance to push that back. We thank you for the victory that is found in Jesus, and we love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com